Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-438 of the Run Run Live podcast. So I've got a lot of news today, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in more detail in the outro. Big news. So today I recorded uh, for this show a shop talk chat with an Australian dude named Brody who does a podcast down there. He's a physio. I met him on Facebook. And he does a podcast called the Run Smarter Podcast. So we did a a little thing. So this is posted on his feed as well, if you happen to stumble across that. And it's about running without getting injured, which it turns out is uh, super ironic, given what I'm going to talk about today. But as for a theme, I was toying with the collaboration as a theme, right? I collaborated with this guy, or maybe taking the long view, or maybe even how to be at peace with what the universe serves up. You know, I don't know. Maybe we'll just have to see how it comes out, right? Maybe it, it will it will emerge with its own theme. So my training was going well up until the middle of last week. I finished off this cycle that I've been on this summer with a nice 18-ish mile trail run with a dog last Sunday. And I have been challenged at work by how busy I am. So squeezing in these two-hour runs every couple of days has been very, very hard. Uh, Surely, you know, I I feel that stress of time scarcity, whether it's real or imagined, I, I was feeling it. And in section one, I'm going to talk about shoes because Brody brought this up and I think it needs clarification. We need to pick at this scab a little bit. Is that a bad metaphor? I don't know. We need to talk about it a little bit. Shoes. In section two, I'm going to give you part two of this latest apocalypse story chapter or run of topics. Uh, And I'm going to try my hand at writing some exposition, some background See how that goes. I was also feeling a, a lot of stress around the current news cycle over the last couple of weeks. So I decided to shut off my incoming news feeds. You know, 
<laughs> we have that choice, right? And we all like to think of ourselves as independent, independent thinkers of it. You know, we those external influences, they don't they don't affect us. But at the end of the day, we're as Pavlovian as Cocker Spaniels, my friends. And what you let into your awareness, it colors your awareness. And the news and social media channels, they know this. And they also know how to manipulate your emotions. And if you don't believe me, try your own A-B test on any of your social media feeds, right? Take two pieces, two pieces of content, one hopeful and positive, the other angry or controversial or negative. Post them. See which one gets the most response. See which one gets pushed to the top of your feed every day. See which one has the most comments. The algorithms automatically reinforce our natural negative biases, and they'll drive that anger and outrage to the top of your feeds. It's a negative reinforcement cycle. You know, unfortunately, the news isn't much better if it bleeds, it leads, right? So you're you're fighting against a, an artificial intelligence there that has way more processing power and data than you do to work with in your little six pounds of dog's breakfast, as Vonnegut calls it. So I had been starting my days by reading the headlines of the different news feeds that I get. And these aren't, you know, weird things. These are like the Boston Globe, the New York Times, and, and these sort of things. And I just decided to stop reading the news. <laughs> and I stopped posting or reading Facebook in particular. I mean, I gave up on Twitter a couple of years ago. But uh, anyhow, if you need to reach me, you're probably better off sending me an email or a carrier pigeon. <laughs> At this point, I'm still posting on Instagram as CYKT Russell if you like pictures of food and dogs. It's too bad. You know, these are the same tools that allowed me to meet and get to know you, my friends. And now they're driving us apart. But at the end of the day, it's a choice, right? You like to believe you can choose how to interact and how to react, and you can control your own emotions from external influences. But you know, maybe you can, maybe you can't. But in the spirit of balance, the universe also gave back to me uh, when I needed it this week. The old running podcasters from a decade ago, this little club we had, uh, they started interacting on a new audio app called Cappuccino. And this takes us back to that intimate little club of casual runners, passionate runners who used to get together on Twitter in the old days. And it's super nice to hear from them. It's a bit of uh, an old soldier's feel to it. You know, remember that time? <laughs> and let's make that the theme for today. Why don't we? Old friends, you and I and old friends, on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Okay, my friends, let's talk about shoes. A quick talk about shoes. Really, now, you know, what's all the fuss about shoes? I usually avoid talking about shoes, especially with runners, because it's very emotional. Runners love their shoes. Runners swear by their particular brand of shoe. It's like religion or politics. Everyone argues. They're convinced by the rightness of their point of view. So I avoid these discussions. I just kind of smile. So why? Why is there so much emotion wrapped up in your shoes? I think it's probably pretty simple. These shoes, these 
this, this pair of shoes, they were with us as we conquered that long training run in that massive race. And we impart to these shoes a supernatural power for having guided us through these treacherous waters to our lofty goals. But was it really the shoes? And it's also emotional because typically it's a journey we had to go through over many years and many injuries and perils to finally get to this holy grail pair of shoes. And then... Just when we have arrived at shoe nirvana, they wear out, and we can't find another pair. And the stupid shoe company changes them. It's like a series of tempestuous romances. We fall in love and get our hearts broken again and again. When we have to get new shoes? Ah, that's stressful, right? It takes on all the stress of car shopping or blind dating. These shoes are expensive in some cases, and it's a financial decision. If you make a bad choice, you're stuck with these bad investments to mock you and your decision skills and your financial wherewithal every time you look in your closet. Well, here's the good news and the bad news for you. It's not about the shoes. You think you have found a wonderful savior shoe to spend your running life with but it's probably as much correlation as causation. These just happened to be the shoes you were in when something else you did made you healthy, stronger, and faster. You know, smart training, form, volume, intensity, they probably all have more impact on your ability to run than the shoes. And frankly, with the right investment in your training, you open up your shoe options. The New Runner's Journey is predictable. The new runner starts with just running. And after a couple of weeks, they figure, hey, they need to invest in a good pair of shoes. Usually because somebody told them, right? They read it in that new runner advice article. First, you need a good pair of shoes, which is probably about 10% of what you need, to be honest. You need functional shoes, but probably stops there. And our new runner, they go online or to the shoe store, and since they don't have a clue, they buy what is recommended or what looks good. And then in chapter two of The New Runner, the new runner does too much, too fast, and gets an injury, like runner's knee. And they're bummed out because they were starting to like running. Well, you know, at least not hate it. And now they want to run and they can't. And they read another article or talk to the family doctor, or the shoe store guy. And what do you think the advice is? You guessed it. You need different shoes. Now, the runner is down the rabbit hole. Depending on who they talk to, they might get the barefoot running advice, or the zero drop advice, or if they go mainstream, they might get the motion control and structured shoe advice. Well, let's assume they end up with a new pair of shoes, and then they come back from their injury. Now, because they were injured, they are more cautious, and maybe they're doing a little stretching, and maybe they're getting some coaching, and maybe they're working on their form. And before you know it, they're running again. They get past the injury. And what do you think they give the credit to? The coach? No. The smarter training? No. It was the new shoes. The new shoes fixed everything. <laughs> and the cycle repeats. Don't get me wrong. 
There are shoes that are bad for you. And there are even just plain old bad shoes. The tricky bit is that the right shoes for you are going to be specific to you and specific to that individual pair of shoes in some cases. So if you're patient and you train smart, you can learn to run well or at least comfortably in almost any shoe. When you get enough experience, it's easier. You can feel the characteristics of a pair of shoes and especially a new pair of shoes. And you learn how to break in and adapt that shoe to your purposes. And you learn how to feel when a shoe is not right and you can move on. So here's some quick advice for new runners around shoes. So the first bit of advice would be to do a little investigation into your feet and understand whether you have high arches or flat feet. Because that simple understanding will point you to a specific set of shoes that cuts down the population of shoes that you should be in by above 50%. So do that first. And then understand the shape of your foot, right? Because these shoes, all shoes, are designed for the average shaped foot. And if you've got those weird wonky long toes or wide hobbit feet, you're going to want to look for brands that make provisions for your weird, ugly, awful feet. So after that, check your running form. Because you really have a choice here, especially if you're just getting started where you want to invest your time and your money. And you can look at your, your video, your form, and see if you're landing on your heels and rolling through the foot. And it's okay. There's lots of shoes designed for that. Those are the ones with the big, chunky heels. There's nothing wrong with that. But you might consider taking the time to retrain yourself to a more forefoot or midfoot running form. And in the, in the long run, no pun intended, it will save you injuries and it will make you happier with your running. It'll simplify everything. If you do take the time to move to a more natural form, it opens up a few categories of shoe for you. The first thing it does, a nice clean foot strike means you don't need a bunch of structure in your shoe. You can run in any neutral shoe. You you don't need big heels, posts, shanks, or any of that extra stuff in your shoes. Just a basic shoe. And this will save you money, and it's typically much lighter to run in as well. Second, if you have a nice clean form, you can migrate to a zero drop or a no-heel shoe. You know, just be careful. You'll tear up your Achilles if you try to transition too fast. And third, if you have that nice natural form, there's always the option of going barefooted. Yeah, you don't need shoes at all. Again, you know, you'd have to budget a few months for the transition, but it certainly simplifies things. So in summary here, my friends, is the shoes aren't really going to determine how you run. How you run is going to determine the shoes. And if you only have limited time and capital, invest that in your running and in your form Start with a basic neutral cushion shoe and see where it leads you. So it's not about the shoe. It's about you and what you do with the shoe. It's kind of like Dr. Seuss there, wasn't it? And now for today's featured interview. (laughs) 
Welcome, everyone. This is Brody from the Run Smarter podcast. I have with me Chris. Do you want to say hi, Chris? Hello, everyone. This is Chris Russell. My trail name is Mad Dog. Very good. And do you want to just maybe just give a quick intro about yourself before we take this episode away? Sure. I will give you the 200 words or less. I am a father, a husband of many years, but I'm also an endurance athlete for the last, oh, 20, 30 years. And I started out doing a lot of marathons. I got hooked on the Boston Marathon because that's where I'm from. So I'm finishing my 21st Boston Marathon virtually in the next week. But I've also dabbled in mountain bike racing, ultra mountain bike racing, triathlons, ultra running. And again, as part of my virtual Boston this weekend, I'm going to do a 42-mile ultra in the mountains with my buddies. So <laughs> that's me. I host the Run Run Live podcast for the last coming up on 13 years, I think. Very nice. And for those who have not been accustomed to me, my name is Brody. And like I said before, I have the Run Smarter podcast. I am a physical therapist or a physio therapist by trade and I have my own online physio clinic and it's just tailored to treating runners. So it's my mission to try and bring clarity and control back to every injured runner and trying to break down misconceptions and any sort of beliefs that are not really serving you that it's circulating throughout the running community. So I guess that's the ethos around the podcast and my content and blogs and things that I put out there. So I thought it'd be a good idea to join forces with Chris and come up with this topic on how to run faster without injury. And it's always good to combine forces and get some different ideas. And I'm excited about what we've put together today. So Chris, do you maybe just want to take us off with our first dot point and then we'll follow on from there? Yeah, let me fire up my notes. When Brody reached out to me on Facebook, I was like, Brody, who's this guy? Do so you want to give me surfing lessons this Australia? <laughs> then we get, get together and say, hey, you know what would be cool? Let's talk about something that people care about. And that's running faster without hurting, right? We all want to get faster, but how do you do without getting hurt? So my first point, my first part of that would be to whenever I've gotten injured, it's because I did something stupid and it's because I made some sort of abrupt change in my volume, my intensity, or any of my habits. So in order to run faster, you're going to have to do speed work, you're going to have to do temp, you're going to have to long, longer distances, and you don't want to just throw the switch on that stuff. You want to ease into it, make sure that you don't hurt yourself in the trend. I'll give you a story of one time I broke my ankle trying to do tempo on trails. And after I thought about it, I said, it's because you idiot, you haven't run in the trails for a week when you went out and tried to do that tempo run. So I broke my own. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to the number one step to injury prevention is just trying to avoid any acute change or anything that's really abrupt that exceeds your capacity to adapt. And it's well put exactly what you just said. It's Usually when most runners will kind of nod their head when they have an injury and then they look back on their last couple of days, last couple of weeks of training and be like, yeah, that was pretty stupid. <laughs> right. Yep. So we learn sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> so you know, what you're saying is we need to implement the tempo stuff, the speed stuff, the distance stuff. That's all critical for getting faster, but we just need to be a bit more patient and make sure we're, we're making the right decisions when we're uh, slowly adding in these variables. Yeah, we, we typically overestimate what we can do right out of the gate, but we underestimate what we can accomplish over time. So yeah. if you're into it, you're going to get your peak's going to be a lot higher. Absolutely. And I'm glad that's the first point that we discussed because it's probably the most important one. It's almost like the foundation one. And going on from that, so my second point would fit in really nicely. It's just being consistent. And a lot of people can 
self-reflect back on their last six or 12 months and see if they're following this boom bust injury cycle. A lot of people, when they're feeling really good, they start piling on the mileage and then they're injured and then they're variables, their distances are limited by what that injury is entailing. So yeah, trying to be as consistent as you can and try and string together month after month after month of consistent training. And then that's where you're going to really reap a lot of benefits. So make those smart decisions, self-reflect on the last couple of months. And if you are going through that boom bust cycle, perhaps trying to change some habits or trying to change your attitude or trying to change your structure in any way that might be more advantageous. Yeah, I think that's a good point. A couple of things in there. By nature, endurance sports is seasonal or it has seasons that are, you'll find your own rhythm in that for everything. There is a season there. So you'll find that there's different times of year when you ease into different routines, but you don't want to boom and bust, like you said, like go to zero, then go to a hundred odd exam. And, and the other thing you need to realize is that it takes some time to build that core endurance and more importantly, the muscle and fascia strength to be able to adapt to those bigger cycles or those different cycles. So for a, you say you get a, a six-week or a 12-week marathon training plan, if you're starting from scratch, that's not going to get you there, right? I mean, you may be able to run that race, but your body's not going to fully adapt, I think, until 10, 12 months out. Maybe. Absolutely. The body does a really amazing job at adapting to, if you're being patient and you're slowly adding in the loads, it does an amazing job at adapting to what you're subjecting it to. So yeah, recognize those seasons and try and set yourself up for, if you have to do like a marathon or a race or something, make sure you're appropriately or you're giving the right amount of time. So yeah, a really, really good point. All right. So there we go. We're uh, five minutes in. We got two points under our belts. Let's go for my second. Yeah, fire away. So this is sort of a two-parter and it goes back to what I was just talking about, about recovery periods or the seasons in your training. So training in general is you're going to push yourself, then you're going to recover. And people always think of training in the push yourself part, but they don't think so much about the recover part. And it's weird because the recover part, that's where you get all the benefit, right? That's where your body comes back stronger. So you have to know what your recovery, what your, everybody's different, right? So how do you recover, right? What are your thresholds? There's people like Dean Carnazes who can run 100 miles every day, recovers right away. But people like you and I, it may take two, three days for us to recover from that three hour long, right? So, so you got to know what your personal recovery threshold is and then plan that periodization into your training. I'm going to hit it hard for one week and then recover, or I'm going to hit it hard for two weeks and then recover. Whatever works for you. And it's that periodization of push and recover, push and recover that allows you to reach the, the top of the mountain and get faster, meet your goals of getting faster, going longer. Yeah, I'm really glad you added that as a point because there's something I don't know a lot about. So if Chris, if you're saying that we need to listen to our body or listen to your own recovery strategy, what might that feel like? Are we going off what the body's telling us? Are we doing off like heart rate? Are we doing off like perceived exercise? How does that carry over practically? It's all those things. Sometimes it's going to be really clear to you where it's going to manifest as my legs are sore, right? Uh, right. And that's all. Everybody knows that. But it's absolutely heart rate as well. If you are looking at your heart rate every day, 
And then when you run, you're looking at your heart rate, you can see how long it takes for your heart rate to recover from a hard effort or a harder effort, right? It's not just what your heart rate is, it's how fast does it recover? Because if it snaps right back, you're okay, right? But if it's taken a long time to recover from those efforts, then you're probably overtrained. So a lot of it, it's not science, uh, unfortunately. And that's where it really helps to have a coach because they can watch you from the outside and they can notice you saying words like tired or I slogged through this workout, I didn't feel right. So keeping those notes, you can kind of tease out when you can see an athlete getting tired, right? And they're getting to that point where they got to recover. Yeah, I'll add on to that as well. I've just finished doing an online module around the master's runner and they did specifically mention that the older you get, the longer you need to recover And a lot of people, if they've formed the same habits that they have in their 30s or their 40s, and then they're getting into their 50s, 60s as a runner, you really need to respect that recovery process. And it does take longer than when you're 20 years younger. So that can really get into a danger zone of injury. If you continue with those same recovery habits, like, oh, I only need a day or two and I'll be fine. Yeah, really, really respect that the body does need time. And perhaps if you want to measure your heart rate or just measure how the body's feeling once you jump out of bed, do you feel like you want to exercise? Are you feeling like the joy of exercising or do you need to take another day or two to recover? Yeah, really key. I mean, that's tricky, right? And that's why I would always recommend you have a coach, even if it's just somebody from your running club or anybody and keep your sort of notes around your workouts because you'll start to see patterns and especially if you get right then you can go back and look and say what was the pattern oh i was overtired for almost two weeks going into this i wasn't getting enough sleep right or whatever it is and you can see those patterns but everybody's different and like you said it changes over time because when i was in my 20s and 30s and even 40s i was a five to seven day a week guy now Mm. i'm a four day a week guy right and the recovery stuff yeah and i've got another tip further down the track around recovery which would tie in really nice with this one but the next point i had was something a little bit more practical and if we're talking about trying to run faster the one thing i think about is trying to have lighter shoes and this is delving into the science that i know quite well and lighter shoes there's a lot of research if your shoes are 100 grams lighter you get a 1.1% increase in efficiency and there's been some studies to show that if your shoes are 300 grams less there's a efficiency increase by 2.6% which is really really good and when we want to perform when we're talking about running faster especially for endurance athletes if your running efficiency improves that's a huge huge advantage and of course, with the running topic itself, it's run faster without injury. So I do say you have to safely transition to a lighter shoe, which is probably another topic in itself. But just be aware that if your lighter shoe does have less support or if it has a like a reduced heel drop or something like that, we do really need to slowly transition in so that the body does adapt to those lighter shoes. Anything you need to add with that, Chris? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So I'll avoid talking about shoes mostly because of the religious topic and, and I'm not an authority on religion. But as far as the running goes, especially because if you are trying to get faster, you will end up in some structure training that includes speed work and tempo work, right? Running at a higher turnover, higher threshold, and your lighter shoes are going to make that a lot. So for me, what I would do when I was doing a lot of track work was I'd have two sets of shoes, right? You'd have the lighter shoes with less structure and do your speed work and track. And then you have maybe the trainer for your base, right? Just some heavier trainers. 
But this is is absolutely true. When you look at shoes, it used to be in the old days, they would try to put you into a motion control clunky shoe to start. And the only way to avoid that is to, over time, look at your form, right? And if you can have a nice, clean, four-foot strike form, you can run in almost any shoe over time. So like you said, don't just jump into a pair of zero drop shoes if you've been running in seven millimeter drop shoes, because it'll take you three months to accustom to that. And if you just switch over to those, you're going to blow your Achilles, right? 100%. (laughs) Yeah. And you see that all the time, right? But again, it's that easing in the transition thing. But I absolutely agree that you get that lighter pair of shoes for racing with. Um, because if you take all that structure out of the heel, if your form is right, you're not using any of that heel anyhow. It's just there more as a guide than a crash. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good point that you have there to try and, like if you do have different types of shoes, to find an effective way to transition between shoes, not just constantly running in one shoe the entire time. Uh, I think we've covered a lot with that point. I'm happy to move on if you want to take away the next one. Uh, sure. So what I wanted to suggest for getting faster is uh, strength and flexibility in your training. So a lot of times people will just jump right on the speed work, tempo work. It's good to also work in some strength well. And strength can take the form of pure doing lunges or isometric holds or that sort of stuff with your legs, right? So having a program of that in the first part of your training plan to strengthen your legs before you get the heavy race specific stuff. And that'll give you the strength, the leg speed when you get there. Uh, Same is true with the flexibility, right? When some yoga, uh, some specific stuff to keep those tendons and that fascia uh, long and lean. And for you physio, I will also say, if you have the option, getting a good uh, massage and getting somebody to dig in there every couple of weeks is a great option as well. But also in your training, so in that first phase of your training to build strength work into your legs, you can do a lot of hill, right? So, and I don't mean just running up hills. I mean some structured hills where you're doing a 30 second or a 60 second, 90 second set of repeats, not at max, but at like 80%. And that'll bring the, the strength work, right? So if I go out and find a hill and do a set of 10 60 second repeats and 80%. That's going to be an enormous amount of strength in my legs, in my turnover, in my form. It's it's just wonderful stuff. Yeah, it's a good option for those who still want to appreciate the benefits of strength, but don't re- they're not much of a gym goer and don't like lifting weights. It's, it's a really nice option because propelling you up a, a hill is going to build you up for propelling you on the flats. And yeah, it's a really nice compromise. I think like within my podcast, I have an entire season dedicated to the benefits of strength training when it comes to running and what the science does show. And I have had the opportunity to interview a lot of researchers around this topic and the general consensus is strength training will help you run faster and it the science it shows that and it's great that we do have that evidence out there and they do tend towards if you are lifting weights and doing your lunges squats deadlifts like all of those type of exercises you do once it's safe to do so once you do have the right techniques start adding on the weights and getting towards like a six to eight rep max and really slow heavy control that kind of stuff but you also want the power the power comes in with quick box jumps or like some quick skipping or the hill doing hills at 80 percent of your your max that those are a really nice component that just starts topping up your overall performance and yeah i'm glad you added in 
strength and flexibility because it's the strength part of it is just like crucial for any runner who wants to perform better. So yeah, really nice point. And is there anything you want to touch on on this one before we move on? No, I think that's self-explanatory. Very good. The next point I had was to recognize the importance of the 80-20 rule. And uh, there's not much science around the actual 80-20 rule. It might be give or take a couple of percent. But one thing you do need to take away is that the majority of your running should be at low intensity and we do need to top up with the high intensity stuff but i do notice a lot of runners who feel like they need to run faster they just want to add in more and more running faster repeats or interval sessions and they end up doing say like 50 percent high intensity 50 percent low intensity and it just dramatically increases the likelihood of an injury and so respecting that even the best athletes in the world, even the ones that are performing at the top, they still have that 80% just really, really low intensity stuff. And it allows the body just to build up a really big volume for you to work on that top end and work on that uh, the 20, 15% high, high intensity really works well. Have you seen uh, similar effects like with your background? Yeah. So it's more than the 80, 20, right? It's I agree. If you look at a structured training plan, if I have a, you know, if you have a marathon, you're going to break that into probably three phases of training that are going to get more race specific as you go. But if you have the opportunity to build going into that, what you're going to do is all slow aerobic running, heart rate zone two. So what you're trying to do is you're, you're building more mitochondria in your cells at a, a lower effort level. So you're doing, and all the professionals do this as well, but you're working in that zone two heart rate to build that capacity so that then when you start making it race specific, you start going into the temp and the strength, the pace training, you have that deep well of conditioning that you've built up to use, right? And then when you're actually in the training, that's where the You got to remember that how you cycle through that in your periods, waves, and make sure you recover enough, right? Absolutely. In a peak training week for us mere mortals, you shouldn't be doing out of those seven days. There shouldn't be more than two of those that are uh, tempo or speed, right? Yeah. Very good. 20. Yeah. Indeed. I think we're keeping well with time and we've got one point each to to get through. So, um, yeah. Kick us off. Yeah. All right. So another religious topic I talk about is nutrition. But what I find in my own training, I'm an old guy, I'm a meat and potatoes guy from the 70s. But I found that when I get into some really intense training, the kind of training that you need to go faster, that you really need to recover. And one of the most important things to recover from is inflammation. And depending on what food you put in yourself, what fuel you put in yourself, some of it causes or at least uh, has more of an inflammatory content than others, right? So if you look at the nutrition, you can wire up some nutrition that actually helps you recover and you'll just feel better, right? So instead of fighting your diet, like we did for years, right? We just fight our diet. You can start pulling out those things, um, you know, like white bread and pasta cause inflammation and you'll recover faster and Because you're recovering faster, you'll be able to up your volume and get faster. Yeah, totally agree. It's like if you want to try and build bigger mileage with your running, what you're doing is like you're creating output and the nutrients that you give yourself is the input and you want that equation to kind of balance out. And if you're giving yourself this junk nutrition, you can't expect a really high quality output. And yeah, you're totally right. I have had some really nice 
dietitians that I've had on my podcast talking about inflammation. And it does seem like you're talking about like the white breads, the pastas, and also sugar. Sugar is like a massive yep. one when it comes to inflammation. Yep. 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 And yep. we don't have to give up sugar, but trying to limit as much as you can. That way, if you want to see good results with your running, trying to limit the amount of sugar. Because how many times do you see someone training for a marathon and because they're doing really high mileage and they do like a 30K run and then they just feel exhausted and they just eat a cake, eat cupcakes, cookies all day because they feel like it's justified because they've deserved it. They've had a really large run and they're craving this sugar and they just end up like putting on weight when they prepare for a marathon or they just feel like they're eating too much junk food than when they weren't training for the marathon. It's something really key that we need to think about because we want, like I was saying, those nutritions are coming in. We want to be rich in like all the the really nice vitamins, minerals, nutritions, just in order to receive or have that really high quality output. Yeah, absolutely. And and the old timers, we used to say the furnace is hot enough, any fuel will burn. And that's true. You can run through a lot of bad nutrition, but if you actually want to feel good and get faster and get the benefit from your training, it's not hard to tweak your diet a little bit to get a big benefit. Very true. And I think my last point really ties in well with what we've just discussed. And it's throughout your week, throughout your month, your high intensity days should be really reflective of when you've aided your recovery. Like when you've recovered really, really well, they're the moments when you should be implementing those high intensity days. And that is including nutrition, that is including if you have stress or if you've had really poor quality sleep. There has been a really solid link between lack of sleep over a couple of days to a couple of weeks and their link with injury. So for whatever reason, if you've moved house, if you've stressed, if you've got a new job, if you had a new kid, like all those stressful moments, if you aren't getting good quality sleep, don't run yourself into the ground with your training because that is almost a surefire way of developing an injury. But on the opposite side, if you are feeling like well-rested, if you are getting good quality sleep, if you're hitting some a really nice nutrition throughout the week, and you're feeling really good, these are the moments that you really need to take full advantage and implement those higher intensity sessions because your body's going to recover faster. You're going to have a more optimal recovery and you're going to reap those benefits. And it's just training smarter. It's just making those smart decisions. And those who have a really regimented structure and say, no, Sundays are my high intensity days. And then you go out on the Saturday night, you have a couple of beers and you don't get good quality sleep. It's making that judgment call. Maybe I need to move that session to the Monday or the Tuesday when I do feel well rested and I have had a good meal and not as stressed. Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe that's the adjustment I need to make. And just making several of those smarter decisions throughout your preparation can really see some really good benefits. Anything you want to add with that, Chris? I mean, I've found success in taking it a week at a time, right? So typically I'll get my week's worth of workouts from my coach on a Sunday or a a Sunday night. And then I look at what workouts I've got for that week. And if it's a big week, then I'll look at my life and say, okay, when am I going to get done? When am I going to squeeze these in, right? And it's not always perfect, but that way you can then organize the stuff you're talking about around it. You can say, okay, I got to do a hill session on Friday morning, so I better get to bed on, right? And just set the plan so it doesn't get away. But on the other side of that, you know what? We're all people. Nobody's perfect. And the rule I make for myself on these workouts is to, to show up, right? And once you get out there, if it feels awful, okay, you can leave, but you got to show up. 
right? Because Absolutely. more often than not, like I'll tell you a couple of Fridays ago, I had a tempo run and I had to drive uh, a couple hours and I made the mistake of eating some snack nuts on the ride down. So I got a little bit of a full belly and I got to go out and do this tempo run. But I just got up and I said, okay, instead of 80%, I'll go 60% or whatever, right? We'll see how it goes. And once I got out there, I felt pretty good after making a stop in the woods. <laughs> 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 and it got better, right? So did I get 110% of that workout? No, but I got enough of it, right? And I really would have hated myself. Yeah, nice. Uh, it's just being kind to yourself and probably just trying to know the difference between, am I just feeling lousy for any particular reason or is it my body telling me to slow down? And then once you're out there and getting into a run, you can probably get a really accurate interpretation of what your body's telling you. So yeah, at least whack on the shoes and get out there to start. That's really good. I like to summarize just a bit of a general recap. So we've got point number one, Try not to make any radical changes in your training and just respect the adaptability of the body. Number two, just be consistent, avoiding those boom-bust cycles. Number three, knowing your recovery thresholds and really respecting that recovery time frame. Number four, transition to lighter shoes if you can transition safely. Number five, doing a nice strength and flexibility training. Number six, recognize the importance of the low intensity, the 80-20 rule. Seven, clean nutrition. Really make sure that we're respecting inflammation with the foods that we bring in. And number eight, making sure that we're training optimally with our recovery. So trying to match our high intensity sessions with some reduced sleep or like really good quality sleep, nutrition, stress, all that kind of stuff then tying in really, really well. That was great, Chris. I think we covered so much really valuable content. Do you want to just finish off with your final like plugs and if my audience wants to know more about you, where they can go? Yeah. And uh, and likewise as well, Brody. The thing I'll leave you with is I've been doing this for a long time and uh, it's a journey. So if you start thinking you're running is not today's workout, but a lifetime's worth of workouts and a lifetime worth of training and adventures, everything comes into perspective a lot better. You can cut yourself some slack and enjoy it for what it is, right? It's a lifestyle. It's not a particular event or a particular workout. And you can find me, uh, my website is runrunlive.com, all one word. My handle on the interwebs is C-Y-K-T Russell. That's Chris Yellow King Tom, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, two S's, two L's. You can find me on Facebook and all those other places that we hate. Awesome. And uh, I do recommend like one of your latest episodes. I had a listen uh, yesterday to Amanda and the episode was conditioning versus form for injury prevention. I really liked that content. So uh, if anyone hasn't listened to that one, I highly recommend it. And if someone wants to learn more about me, I have the Run Smarter podcast. I help people make smarter training decisions so they can survive and thrive as a runner. I am active on Instagram. So it's um, Run Smarter series if you want to look that up. And I have the Run Smarter podcast facebook group if you want to dive in there so um yeah thanks again for taking the time chris coming on and combining forces i think we covered a lot today there we go two for one it's a twofer <laughs> thanks not, mate not appreciate a, you coming wait, on wait wait brody not a twoies a two not a twoies <laughs> very true very true <laughs> all right we'll talk all to the you best soon. chris yeah cheers cheers see ya sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know City of the Dead, Part 2. Brad wasn't designed for the apocalypse. 
He still didn't know what he was designed for, but it wasn't this apocalypse. He had taken a year off from school, partly because he needed a break to figure things out, partly because he flunked managerial accounting. That was another story. His dad wanted him to get a business degree, and since Brad didn't know what he wanted to do, he followed the track that was laid in front of him, like a donkey tethered to a mill wheel. It wasn't that he couldn't do the coursework. It was that he didn't particularly care about the outcome. That existential apathy led to some procrastination and some bad decisions, which in combination with a feverishly self-important professor led to a point of failure. So he decided to take a year off, regather himself, rebuild some energy and momentum. They had quite a row when he got home, his dad lecturing about how he was wasting money and advantages that he would have killed for when he was his age working two jobs, 20 hours a day, two young kids. And Mom, playing the part, chiming in with, He's only 19 years old, Brad. His father was Brad Sr. Give him some space. Kids are different nowadays. You're not going to solve anything by yelling. In the end, it was decided that a year off was a good thing for Brad Jr. But, This would not be a year of backpacking in the Pyrenees, sipping cappuccinos and nibbling croissants. The boy had to learn about real life and work. He'd been coddled too long. Nor was he to lay about twiddling video games. Brad Sr. knew a guy. He knew a few guys. Brad Sr. would find him a job. Brad Jr. would get up early, grab his lunch bag from his mom, and work with his hands to learn what work was. And then they'd talk about college again. And so Brad Jr. found himself working the second shift in distribution center number two of the Vitafine Pharmaceutical Company. And he loved it. He didn't have to think too much. He just showed up at noon, punched in, and did what they told him to do. He was a quick study, a bright kid, and soon was a key cog in the Vitafine wheel. Bradley Jr. wished he could have thanked his dad. This was exactly the perspective he needed. The self-worth of working hard and fitting in and making a difference in small ways. The pride of being part of something. The paycheck every two weeks to drop into an ever-expanding bank account that seemed like a fortune to a 20-year-old. He wished he could have told his dad. He tried to get up from his bed to go to his dad that day. He could hear his dad choking in blood and mucus and tried to get up to go to him, but he didn't make it. He woke up later in a stain of his own blood and mucus on the carpet of their 70s ranch house. Somehow his immune system had fought the battle with the virus to the edge of life and turned the tide. Somehow he had survived it when the rest of the world didn't. And when Brad had regained enough energy... He buried his mom and dad lovingly in the backyard, and only then could he thank his dad for the job and everything. Now the old man grabbed his arm and hissed, Let me do the talking. Brad felt the old man's strong grip on his arm. 
and watched as the old man hunched over and assumed the guise and deportment of a really old man, an aged and feeble soul. With the old man shuffling and supported on his arm, they emerged into the daylight of the dock. Brad was scared. These people might be a gang of killers, one of those small tribes that now roam the wastelands of the apocalypse, killing and taking. Humans devolved into their tribal state that, truthfully, never was that far away. The weak and the uncareful were pushed aside from suckling at the mother teats of the old world. What was humanity? In his gut, Brad knew, despite the old man's bravado, this was one of those moments where their lives hung in the balance. A group of men in camouflage fatigues, like National Guard outfits, stood by their collection of motorcycles. One of them, maybe the guy in charge, held up a hand. Hold it there, fellas. Who are you, and why are you breaking into this facility? Are you the army? Brad blurted out, and the old man pinched him. Gentlemen, excuse my nephew's manners. We are survivors like you. We came here looking for medicine for my eyes. We didn't break in. Brad is an employee of this facility. Would you like to see his badge? No, that's okay, but we're going to have to take you back to the store and talk to the boss anyhow, so just relax. The leader man extracted a walkie-talkie from a mesh pocket and spoke into it, nodding to the others as he did so. The rest of the men assumed disinterested poses and looked more bored than violent. In a few minutes, a beat-up minivan pulled up and they loaded Brad and the old man into the back where the bench seats should be. Their wrists were zip-tied behind their backs and they were checked for weapons, but all of this felt more like routine than the lead-up to death. Their cavalcade slowly made its way through the roads of trash and grease stains into the small city of the port. Eventually, they were pulled, blinking into the scarred light of a clean parking lot. More men and women milled about in front of the strip mall here, some watching and guarding, some going about chores. There were a couple heads poking out behind stacks of sandbags on the roof. It all seemed normal and organized to Brad. Maybe this would be some new structure to his life. The only thing that was out of place was a wooden structure, off to the edge of the parking lot, and Brad squinted at it and elbowed the old man. What's that? Some sort of swing? The old man focused and looked older. He shook his head. Gibbet, he said with a flatness of tone that did not match the frenzied churning of his mind. They were prodded towards the entrance of what appeared to have been a Golden's Fitness Center. Brad felt his world getting smaller his options narrowing, and his future dimming. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you and I, we old friends, have collaborated through the end of episode 4-438 of the Run Run Live podcast. So let's get to the big news. So I finished up my 1,000-kilometer run across Tennessee on uh, August 25th, as predicted. Got my belt buckle, so that was good. And I topped off my training last weekend with a nice final long trail run with Ollie. And my plan for this cycle was to run the 42-mile Wapak and back with some buddies and pick up my virtual Boston Marathon in the process. 
But life, even this wonderful endurance life, does not care about your plans, and chaos stepped in. So the day after I ran the north half of Wapak with Paul a couple weeks ago, I had a little twinge in my right quad. I was out walking Ollie in the morning and felt a little cramp, like a little cramp. And I thought to myself, huh, must be dehydrated or something, and I forgot about it. And then about the same time, I noticed the lymph node in my right leg was a bit swollen. Yeah, no big deal. Some sort of bite or scab or nick. You know, it causes a little immune response. I had an easy week, and it all sort of went away. And then throughout that next hard week, I had this ache or itch in my right quad, sort of just hanging around. Didn't hurt when I ran, but it was sort of like this little niggle. And after my big week capped with that big trail run, my right quad was noticeably swollen and the lymph node was up again. And it seemed to be spreading down from the top of the quad to the bottom of the quad. Still didn't hurt when I ran, so not a muscle pull or a tendon or anything like that. So I did the smart thing, amazingly enough, (laughs) and went to see my doctor. And he was concerned and he ordered an MRI and told me, don't run. And I know this guy for a long time, so I trust him. And he intimated that it is maybe a hematoma because, you know, there's something going on in there. Basically, you know, something's bleeding in there is what he thinks, which kind of makes sense given all the trail running and falling down in particular I did in July and August. And since I am a member of the great American healthcare system, even and even though I am one of the privileged people with healthcare, I'm eight phone calls in to scheduling this MRI, and I'm going to end up paying for it out of pocket. So that's why I'm putting a lot of work into it. But the bottom line is I had to cancel my plans this weekend, and it's either nothing, right? A couple days off goes away, or it's something, and we won't know until the MRI. And maybe then we won't know either. And so this big summer cycle with all this trail running, it comes to a close with a whimper instead of a bang. With the long weekend, we'll see when I can get that MRI done. And I've got this short window to get my Boston, my virtual Boston done. So maybe I'll have to walk that or something, crawl on my belly like a snake. So after that, I'm feeling like I need to spend the rest of the year working on my flexibility and my strength. Anyhow, I was already leaning in that direction because I'm feeling a bit weak and fragile. I'll have to figure out how to get back on the weights. So don't worry about me. It's all part of the journey. It's been a weird year for everyone, and I'm certainly blessed in my life. So my friends, remember, don't get caught up in the weirdness. Set your own path. Take what the universe gives you and make some sweet lemonade, because I most certainly will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. To take you out is track number 16 from Brian Sheff, The Rock Opera by the nays called Stars in Solitude.
stars and solitude envelop me. Now I'm where I belong. Now. God.